Hi, I'm Tyler Saltzi, pastor of Grace Bible Fellowship in Peru, Illinois. Our mission at Grace Bible Fellowship is to magnify the glory of the triune God in Christ Jesus by proclaiming God's word to advance the gospel in our lives and the world. We base who we are and what we do on the good news of Jesus. If you would like to find more information about Grace Bible Fellowship, you can visit our website at www.gbfperu.org. I'm so thankful you've come here to listen to God's Word proclaimed as we seek to understand it and be transformed by it. I hope you find this time meaningful, challenging, convicting, joyful, and even life-changing as we worship through the preaching of God's Word. Please turn with me in your Bibles to 2 John. To say that we live in a divided time might be an understatement. It seems as though uh, as ideologies become more and more extreme, people are migrating to one extreme or the other, and that there is nothing like civil discourse between those who disagree. But we as Christians would ask ourselves, should we make every effort to unite or there, are there certain things that should divide us, that must divide us? And what determines what those things that should be that do unite us and what are those things that should divide us? Some might view Christianity as a faith that unifies. Perhaps you think of verses like we find in the Psalms, how pleasant it is when brothers dwell together in unity. We are reminded by Paul to be eager to maintain the unity of the spirits. And Peter instructs us to have unity of mind. However, in his earthly ministry, Jesus said, that he came not to bring peace on earth, but a sword. You read in Matthew 10, For I have come to set a man against his father, and a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a person's enemies will be those of his own household. For from now on, in one house, there will be five divided Three against two, and two against three. Again, Jesus said in Matthew 12, Whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. Elsewhere, he says, For the one who is not against us is for us. There is no neutral ground with Jesus, Jesus creates division. And for those who are striving to follow Jesus, we will be divided from those who are not following Christ. So as we consider 2 John this morning, we will see that an unmistakable and unavoidable division is created around the person and the work of Jesus Christ. And for the Christian, this is the, the decisive division that is necessary. For in this division, we know what and whom we are to avoid and to divide over. And what in whom we are to gather together with. For who we gather together with and why we gather together 
reveals not just what we know or believe, but I believe it reveals our hearts, who we love, what we're hoping in, and what we truly believe in that regard. It reveals what should be the preeminent focus of our lives, out of which all of our other decisions flow. This is the fourth time we've been in 2 John together in the recent months. While we'll be touching on some of the uh, earlier points made from previous sermons, um, I won't be going through step by step. If you'd like an exhaustive reminder or extended consideration of the entire letter, you can find those sermons on the church website. The dates are June 12th, June 19th, and August 7th. Again, June 12th, June 19th, and August 7th. But I trust that what we read and consider this morning will be sufficient to stand on its own. So let's stand together, church, as we read 2 John. We stand for, uh, out of reverence and respect for God's holy word. 2 John, beginning in verse 1. The elder to the elect lady and her children, whom I love in truth, and not only I, but also who know, all who know the truth, because of the truth that abides in us, and will be with us forever. Grace, mercy, and peace will be with us from God the Father and from Jesus Christ the Father's Son in truth and love. I rejoice greatly to find some of your children walking in the truth just as we were commanded by the Father. And now I ask you, dear lady, not as though I were writing you a new commandment, but the one we had from the beginning, that we love one another. And this is love, that we walk according to his commandments this is the commandment, just as you have heard from the beginning, so that you should walk in it. For many deceivers have gone out into the world, those who do not confess the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh. Such a one is the deceiver and the antichrist. Watch yourselves, so that you may not lose what we have worked for, but may win a full reward. Everyone who goes on ahead and does not abide in the teaching of Christ does not have God. Whoever abides in the teaching has both the Father and the Son. If anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not receive him into your house or give him any greeting. For whoever greets him takes part in his wicked works. Though I have much to write to you, I would rather not use paper and ink. Instead, I hope to come to you and talk face to face so that our joy may be complete. The children of your elect sister greet you. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Lord, my prayer this morning is that it would not be my words, but your words that ring in our ears, that penetrate our hearts and transform our very being. That having been changed by the Holy Spirit through your word together, that we would then be doers of your word. And the very character of our church might be changed. I pray, God, that we are here to meet with you. To be transformed in the very likeness of Christ. Lord, we do not want to leave here the same as when we arrived. And that can only happen because you are the God who speaks into the void and creates light in the darkness. 
You are the God who takes that which is dead and raises it to life. You are the God who takes a heart of stone and makes it a heart of flesh. You, God, are the only one for whom nothing is impossible. So would you do far more abundantly than all we can ask or think this morning? It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. You may be seated. As we read through this letter this morning, were you struck by the two different tones? In fact, the sudden shift between those two tones that we find. John greets his readers with love and affection. And then quite suddenly, it seems, John's tone becomes one of concern and caution. And did you notice that both those tones, both those areas of emphasis, are really two sides of the same coin? That the two sides of the coin of the truth. The truth leads to sincere love among those who know the truth. And have the truth abiding in them. The truth creates a community of grace and mercy and peace. Walking in the truth, that is living according to the truth, is a great reason for joy. And we walk in the truth when we obey God's command to love one another. But then, beginning in verse 7 through 11, we see that it's this truth that causes the Christian to divide from those who do not agree with the truth. Those who, in fact, hate the truth because they are anti or against Christ. This is not a complete division against all those who are against Christ. Otherwise, there would be no place for evangelism and missions. No, this specifically is a division against those who claim to be Christians, but have gone on ahead and do not abide in the teaching of Christ. And John warns his church to watch out for them. Or you will follow them instead of Christ. You should not welcome them into your church or give them any greeting. For the one who greets them takes part in or participates in their wicked works. As one pastor put it, our homes are to be open to all, but our pulpits are to be closed. We do not endorse false teaching, especially of those bearing the name of Christ, but deny him by their words and their works. We divide from them as a means of preserving the truth and as a means of protecting ourselves. This is why in the loving act of discipline, and hopefully we can agree that discipline is a loving act, but in the loving act of discipline within the church, the final step is to excommunicate or to remove from the community those who claim to follow Christ, but their lives do not show that they actually do. Remember that discipline's goal is for repentance and restoration. That is our chief aim. But until there is repentance and restoration, until there's repentance rather, there cannot be restoration. And so we are instructed to remove the leaven from us. Now these last two verses can be easily read over and their significance missed in the context of the entire letter. But I think it's important to note not only how John begins his letter, but how John ends his letter with the knowledge of all that he has written in between. So let's reread those verses now, verses 12 and 13, which are our focus this morning. He writes there in verse 12, Though I have much to write to you, 
I would rather not use paper and ink. Instead, I hope to come to you and talk face to face so that our joy may be complete. The children of your elect sister greet you. So what is it that we can glean from these two short verses in light of what we've just considered? There is an outline in your bulletin. Again, if that's helpful, you can follow along there. We are on the first point of what we can glean from these two short verses. Number one, we strive to edify with the truth even when we cannot gather together. I'll say that again. We strive to edify with the truth even when we cannot gather together. So we've seen here that John ends his letter the, just the same way that he began and in contrast to what he had just written. He is greeting in love. Verse 13, the children of your elect sister greet you. It's this love that will guard us against following false teachers. It's this love in the truth that wells up in a great desire to come to this church and to talk face to face. John has just said, don't greet false teachers, but we greet you. John said, don't receive false teachers into your home, but I want to see you face to face. But notice that his ultimate desire to be face to face with this church doesn't stop him from writing when he couldn't be together with them. Again, his ultimate desire is to be face-to-face. -face. He could not be face-to-face -face with them. But that did not stop him from writing to them, from communicating with them. And why might that be significant to us? Clearly, there are some important things that John wanted to relate to this church. And the prospect of his visit was not forthcoming. So instead of waiting until he could meet with this church, he wrote them. He didn't write them everything he was thinking about or wanted to say but he wrote them what must have been the most urgent and important. So again, why is this important to us? Well, what is the ideal? The ideal is that we can be together even as we are this morning, that we can talk face to face. But what if we can't? Well, if we can't, then we do all we can. We strive to communicate uh, the most important things. We strive in a sincere brotherly love, to love one another earnestly from a pure heart. That's what Peter writes in his first letter. That word there in 1 Peter, love one another earnestly, implies this exertion of self, stretching of oneself. So maybe if we can't be together, there are things that we can do to communicate and to edify with the truth. Perhaps we could reach out with a phone call. Perhaps we could send a text message or a letter. Is a phone call better than sitting down with someone? I would say no. Is a text or a letter better than hearing someone's voice over the phone? No, I would say. But if that's what we can do, we should do that instead of nothing. While we strive for the best, let us not make the best an enemy of the good. For as often as we are thinking about one another through the week and we are not together, we should be reaching out to encourage one another, to edify one another. 
We should not have the attitude in our hearts, well, I can't meet with them, so I may as well not do anything. Or perhaps it can wait till the next time I do meet with them. Meet with them if you can. If you can't, call. If you can't call, text. If you can't text, write a letter. All the while looking for opportunities to be together. And the aim of our calls, our texts, our meetings, our letters should be genuine love and concern born out of the truth of the gospel. That's what John was doing here. It isn't merely to catch up or to see how things are going. It's probably not less than that, but certainly more than that. For if we fall short, or for we fall short if our aim is not to build up, to edify. And the only way that we can edify is through God's word. As one commentator puts it, pen and ink were means of strengthening and comforting others, but to see each other is more so. The communion of the saints should be maintained by all methods and should tend to mutual joy. We may even use some of Paul's words like we find in 1 Timothy 3, verse 14. He writes there, I hope to come to you soon, but I am writing these things so that if I delay, you may know. And what is it that we want our brothers and sisters in Christ to know? Or Paul writes in Romans 1.11, a letter that was written. He writes there in verse, uh, chapter 1.11, For I long to see you. That's his desire. He longs to see them. That I might impart some spiritual gift to strengthen you. That we might be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. But he doesn't wait until he sees them. He writes them a letter. He communicates with them to do the very thing that he hopes to do while he is in person. So that, I believe, is the first thing that we ought to take from these verses, that we would strive to edify with the truth even when we cannot be together. Let's not dismiss the short text, the reaching out. If you've ever been in a difficult or hard place and you get that text checking in, how are you doing? That letter, (laughs) that phone call. Are we not encouraged by that? It's like, oh, that's exactly what I need to hear. And so if we've received that, let us be those who also give that great encouragement. But there is something else that we can learn, and this will be the focus of the remainder of our time together this morning from these two verses. So not only should we strive to edify with the truth when we cannot be together, but we should stri- uh, we strive to gather in the truth For our complete joy, we strive to gather together in the truth for our complete joy. So we said we can't be together. We strive to be together, but why would we strive to be together? Well, it's what John wrote here. We strive together to be in the truth for our complete joy. The aim of coming to this church and talking face to face For John was so that their joy might be complete. Their joy, that is, their delight, their gladness would be at its fullest. And when they are talking together face to face, literally that means mouth to mouth, implies this intimacy there. When they are together talking face to face about all that John has to tell them, and then they can reply to him, they will have complete joy. Because what he has to tell them and what they have to tell him is grounded in the truth. Now the question we might ask ourselves is, 
why would their joy be complete? Why would it be uh, made full or filled to the full or filled to capacity? That's what that word complete means. Well, the implication is, apart from being together, their joy would not be complete. And we can see a hint earlier in this letter, if you look back at verse 4, where John writes that he rejoiced greatly to find some of your children walking in the truth. We can see another hint in 3 John, verses 3 and 4, where John writes there, I rejoiced greatly when the brothers came and testified to your truth. As indeed you are walking in the truth. I have no greater joy than to hear my children, and these would be his spiritual children, I believe. I have no greater joy than to hear my spiritual children are walking in the truth. So what is the ground underneath John's rejoicing? It's the truth. He knows these whom he calls children, likely spiritual children or brothers or sisters in the family of Christ. They know the truth. They are walking in a manner consistent with the truth that they profess. And I would submit then that true joy has its foundation in the truth. In fact, we could say that true joy has its foundation in Christ himself. So John is rejoicing in the truth of Christ. And then John then rejoices in hearing others talk in that same truth. But notice this is not a complete joy in those two verses I just read. But it's great joy. And I would say, why is that? I think it's because complete joy doesn't come in passing encounters or hearing those who are walking the truth. But complete joy, joy that is filled to the full, comes with gathering together, assembling together, churching together, if you will, with those who are walking in the truth. I'll say that again. I think complete joy, joy that is filled to the full, filled to capacity, only comes when we gather together, when we assemble ourselves together with those who are also walking in the truth. So let's unpack where I get that from, because that's a lot to say perhaps from these two verses. So I'll begin at the end of where complete joy is found, or full joy is found. And you can find that in the first page of your bulletin. It's in our call to worship, Psalm 16. Go to the very end there, verse 11. There we read the psalmist say, You make known to me the path of life. In your presence, there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. This idea of being in your presence is being face-to-face -face with God. So in your presence, being face-to-face -face with you, there is fullness of joy. So only in God's presence is there fullness of joy. Only at God's right hand are there pleasures forevermore. And there can be that because God is the happy God. He is the blessed God, the one who is happy. So when we are in his presence, we, his joy, his happiness then overflows to us. In this life, our joy is mingled with sorrow. Our joy seems to be fleeting. Here one moment and then gone the next. But in the life to come, in the new heaven, in the new earth, it is not so. If you keep your finger or thumb or whatever, pencil and Second John... Uh, let's skip ahead to Revelation 21, a passage that is perhaps familiar to us. Revelation 21. 
verses 1 through 4. Oftentimes it's good to begin with the end and see then how we get there. This is the goal. This is our aim. Revelation 21, verses 1 through 4. Again, John writes here, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. Can you imagine that day, church? The new city coming down as a bride prepared or adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. Did you hear it there? Why is there the presence, uh, in the presence of God fullness of joy? There is no more tears. There are no, there's no more death. There's no more mourning or crying or pain. Those things have passed away. So our fullest joy only comes when we are in God's presence. Isn't that what we read there? The dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. There will be no more sin or the effects of sin. That is what the Christian desires above all things. What occupies our thoughts? Is it this world, the things of this world, what we can get? Is this all consuming to us? Or do we often, or not as often as we should perhaps, but do we think about that heaven reality, what awaits us? That is not our present reality. Because our present reality is that we are exiles and we are sojourners here. That's what we read earlier from Hebrews that Jason read for us. Beginning in verse 13, these all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus, do we speak thus? Or do we say, I'm a stranger, I'm an exile here? But if you do, in Hebrews 11:14, if you do, you make it clear that you are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of the land from which they had gone out, they would have had the opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country, that is, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. And we see a hint of that here, do we not? How does um, John, right at the end there, he says, the children of your elect sister greet you. First Peter takes that word elect and exile and puts it together when he greets them. In First Peter 1, he says, to those who are elect exiles, those who are chosen by God, and yet you're in exile. Christians are those who know this world is not our home. We look forward to an inheritance, a better country, a city with foundations whose designer and builder is God. 
Christians are those who are homesick. Those who long for that full, complete joy that only comes from being together with God. And the question is, can we be in God's presence now? Or must that hope of full joy be deferred until then? And of course, the answer is, yes, we can be in God's presence now in a very real, tangible way. We can be in God's presence when we gather together as the church. We can be in God's presence when we gather together as God's people. For God has always desired to gather a people to himself, to be in his presence. You go back to Genesis in the Garden of Eden. He gave Adam and Eve a body and he walked with them. Or we perhaps think of the call of God's people out of slavery of sin in Egypt. He calls them out of slavery to the promised land as we've been learning about. And God would then dwell with them first in the tabernacle and then in the temple. He desired to be with his people. Or when Israel sinned and were sent into exile, he drew them back to himself. But we see God's desire, to, uh, God's desire to dwell with man most perfectly established in the incarnation, which is the very teaching that these false teachers were denying. God took on flesh and dwelt among us, Emmanuel. And Jesus promised to build his church, which is his body. And the word that Jesus used for his body wasn't temple or synagogue. It was assembly. That's what church means, to assemble together. That we can be his church, we can be his body, regardless of where we're at, if we assemble together. So the church of God is the gathering of God's people where God's presence is. We read in Matthew 18, 20, for two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them. As one author put it, our assembled local churches represent God's presence with man, where heaven comes to earth. In the book, Rediscover Church, the authors put it this way, talking about ourselves as an exiled people, he likens the church to an embassy, which is an officially, uh, officially sanctioned outpost of one nation inside the borders of another nation. And what's a gathered church? The authors of this book say it's an embassy of heaven, where within we find a whole different nation, sojourners, exiles, citizens of Christ's kingdom. Inside such churches, churches you'll hear the king of heaven's word declared. You'll hear heaven's language of faith hope and love spoken, you'll get a taste of the end time heavenly banquet through the Lord's Supper, which we will be participating in this morning. And you'll be charged with its diplomatic business as you're called to bring the gospel to your nation and every other nation. So as we gather together as God's people, as often as we gather on Sundays throughout the week, we gather because we want to be in God's presence because he is our joy. So what does it say then if we are not regularly gathering together? What does it say if we are inconsistent 
or indifferent to gather together? What does it say if there is always something competing against gathering together and participating together as a church? This is a question that we must each ask ourselves. For the answer of why we would not strive to gather together may reveal something about our hearts, what we desire, where our joy is found. We ask ourselves, how do I choose to spend my time? Who do I choose to be with? And why do I choose to be with them? This is not to say that we cannot or should not have relationships with unbelievers or spend time with them. This is not to say that we cannot have interests or desires that are not directly related to the church. The church is not a cult. I am not advocating a legalistic view of Christianity that says, we must earn or keep our right standing with God by our actions, by our attendance, by our participation. But, as Paul writes to the Corinthian church, in 2 Corinthians 1, verse 24, not that we lord it over your faith, but we work with you for your joy, for you to stand firm in your faith. Again, Paul writes to the Philippian church, that he was going to remain in the body and continue with you all for your progress and your joy and the faith. I don't say these things, pose these questions to place a limitation on you. I ask these questions because my desire is that you would find your fullest and complete joy in Christ. And there are things in this world that will dilute that joy. We don't maximize our joy. We say a little bit, a little taste, and that's all. I'm satisfied with that. And my heart cries, no, have more. Drink fully. Don't dig for yourself cisterns that are not going to satisfy you. Don't do that. Come to the place where your joy will be full, where it will be complete. That is what I desire. It's not what you can't do. It's what you can do. It's what you desire to do. And to ask these questions that they might penetrate our hearts. What it might reveal there. If we spend more of our time with unbelievers doing activities with those outside the church, is it because we find that we have more in common with them? Because that is really where our interest and our enjoyment lies. Do we feel like we're more at home with them in their presence than we do with God's people and in God's presence? Are we acting as God's ambassadors in this world, using our authentic relationships and interests to be ministers of reconciliation? Or is there no talk of God or the gospel or eternal things? What if we find... When we examine our hearts, instead of a love for God, there is a love for this world. For this world pulls on our hearts. Does it not? Constantly. Tempting us. Drawing us. Even as the serpent in the garden drew 
Adam and Eve away from the Lord, does this world not speak to us in the same way? John writes in his first epistle in chapter 2, verse 15, Do not love the things of the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life is not from the Father but is from the world. And this world is passing away along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. What are we beholding when we are with unbelievers? Is it not the things of this world? They are not going to point us to God. They are not going to encourage us and lead us to the gospel. For all they know is the world. They will not lead us there to our greatest joy. They will lead us away from our greatest joy. To behold the world. And will we not become those things which we behold? What we behold, we are conformed to its image. We are transformed into that same likeness. And some of us may be asking, well, there are commitments that I have, right? I have family, I have uh, friends, and they have these needs, and I, I want to love them well. But hear me, church, when I say that sometimes the most loving thing you can do is to tell those people no. Because you have a higher priority. You have a greater commitment. In our marriages, they will fall short if husbands tell their wives, you are the love of my life. I love you more than anything. Well, how can you love your wife more than anything if you don't know what true love is? If your first love isn't God himself? No, I tell you, those who say such things will not love their life their wife well and they will abandon God because they have made their wife or their husband their idol no our priority is the Lord and in that testimony of being there on Sunday mornings on Wednesday nights together with God's people you will have an adornment of the gospel why is this person always at the church what is it about this church and then they ask you the question or you can pose the question well this is why i'm there i'm there for my complete joy it's an opportunity for the gospel so don't think that necessarily the loving thing to do is to compromise being with god's people to be with those who are not as an elder in this church much like john was an elder in the early church i have a charge before god as one who is keeping watch over your souls as one who will have to give an account. That keeps me up at night. It gets me up early in the morning. I will have to give an account. Pastor Tyler will have to give an account for your souls. We are shepherds. Elders are shepherds of God's sheep. We are entrusted to know the sheep, to lead the sheep, to feed the sheep, and yes, to protect the sheep. And there is need of protection. Even as John wrote, watch yourselves. There are deceivers in the world. Don't lose what we have worked for. Don't lose that full reward. If you don't abide in the teaching of Christ, if you go on ahead, if you wander away, you do not have God. 
And don't we know this? Don't we know? Haven't we seen? Don't we see that those who are inconsistent or indifferent in gathering together with God's people eventually do no longer gather together with God's people? You don't see them anymore. They're gone. And they haven't left to go to another church. They're, they're gone. That is why we have the admonition from God's word in places like Hebrews. There the writer says, Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. You say, I won't be hardened. I know sin. I won't be hardened by that. Well, that's the idea behind deceitfulness. You don't know that you're being deceived. But guess who knows I'm being deceived? You guys, because you see my life and you say, Eric, you're being deceived. And you come to me lovingly and you say, Eric, you profess this, but this is how you're living. Sin's deceitfulness hardens our hearts. But if we have come to share in Christ, we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. Or elsewhere, the writer of Hebrews, Hebrews 10, and let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see that day, that day we've been talking about this morning, as you see that day drawing near. So let us, church, not neglect meeting together, but let us strive to meet together when it's not easy, when it's difficult, when there, you'd rather sleep in, when you have other places you'd rather be and you're tired and you've had a long week. Let us strive together, exert ourselves in love, whether it's a Sunday service, a Sunday school service, where we can be together under God's word, Wednesday night Bible study, whether you're meeting during the middle of the week for coffee, whether you are having dinner in someone else's house, what a great idea that is to invite someone into your home, to be there with you, having a meal, sharing a meal together. Let us strive for these opportunities, and then we use that time, not idly, but we use that time to exhort one another every day. Not just the days you feel like you need it, but every day. Because every day, sin is attempting to deceive you. Every day you becoming hardened. So every day we should exhort one another. That we should be stirred up or provoked, poked, right? Provoked to what? To love and to good works. Let us together behold God. For we all with unveiled face as we behold the glory of God, are being transformed in that same image from one degree of glory to another. In God's presence now, as we gather together in the truth, and in God's presence then, as we stand before his throne together, we will know what it is to have joy, and joy that is filled to the full. Let's pray together, church. Lord, you are the one who is able to keep us from stumbling and to present us blameless before your presence.
which is the presence of glory with great joy. I do pray, God, that even as your word has gone forth, that it is your word that would be remembered, that your word that would have gone deep into our hearts, your word that would transform, that you might have all the glory, all the majesty, all the dominion and authority now and forever. Amen. We'll move directly into our time of uh, participating in the Lord's table. If you do not pick up a communion cup when you came in, uh, Deacon Jason Lafferty is in the back. Raise your hand, and um, he will uh, pass to you a communion cup so we can move directly into uh, the Lord's table together. If you still have your Bibles open, we're going to be just a couple places here. Uh, 1 Corinthians 10 is where we're going to be at in 11, just briefly here. I mentioned it earlier from that book, uh, Rediscover Church, um, where the authors there write that The church is an embassy that uh, we get a taste of that end time heavenly banquet, that marriage supper of the Lamb through the Lord's Supper. Um, they go on to write that uh, our assemblies are merely signs and foreshadowing of that future heavenly assembly that we read about in Revelation 21. Just as these little wafers that we receive in the Lord's, ta- uh, Lord's Supper are signs of a heavenly banquet. They aren't that. They are representing that, what we're looking forward to. And we can see that in a couple places. 1 Corinthians 10, uh, beginning in verse 16, just um, as we transition here and consider the Lord's table. There Paul writes, The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not our participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not our participation in the body of Christ? That word participation is fellowship, the koinonia. Verse 17 Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. And then 1 Corinthians 11, beginning in verse 17. But in the following instruction, Paul writes, I do not commend you because when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church... When you gather together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you. And I believe it in part, for there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. When you come together, it is not the Lord's supper that you eat. For in eating, one, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing. What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. For I receive from the Lord what I also deliver to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, 
The cup is the new covenant, or this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and the blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. Let us examine ourselves as we consider the body of Christ, both a body that hung on the cross in our place for our sin. Let us consider that body. Let us consider the body which is the church of Christ. If you are not yet trusting in Christ's substitutionary sacrifice in your place for sin, we ask that you do not partake. For eating of the bread and drinking of the cup gains you nothing. And he says we read, you would instead be eating and drinking judgment on yourself. Instead, take this time to consider God's word as we've heard this morning, that the Lord might grant you repentance, that he might make known to you the path of life where there in his presence there is fullness of joy. Let's take some time to examine ourselves and to consider the bread. reading from 1 Corinthians 10. The bread that we break, is it not our participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. Take, eat Jesus' body, which was broken for you. Let's take a few moments here to consider the cup. Church, the cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? Take and drink Jesus' blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. And that perhaps is a good place to end our time together this morning. I pray our time together was good and beneficial. I pray that we would leave here changed. I pray that um, you would take whatever God has taught you this morning and encourage someone else with it. Let's read our benediction, which comes to us from Romans 15, verses 4 through 6. For whatever was written in the former days was written for our instruction, that through the endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have a hope. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus, that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. You are dismissed.